0: Now we know they're not gonna put that extra 3 billion in. Where does that extra 3 billion come from? Private. And I think for the last few years, even pre-COVID, private funding has exceeded NHS funding annually. The NHS treats more people or has a contact with more people, but there's more spent on private dentistry annually than there is on the NHS. The NHS is the second biggest uh, funder of dentistry. Private is number one. I wasn't aware of that.
1: It went from being, I'm going to do foundation training because I need to do it or want to do it and I want to learn the skills to become a good, competent general practitioner and go into dentistry to something that, well, I don't really want to do this anyway. Well, I want to be an all singing, all dancing, private cosmetic dentist because on Instagram I'm seeing smile makeovers, whitening, bonding, and this is what I'm going to be doing. That is not the case with the
0: current generation. All this other stuff, the quality of life stuff, is more important.
1: Hi guys, welcome to Dentistry Unmasked. In this episode, I will be interviewing Dr. Tony Coquine. Tony needs no introduction, but he was my educational supervisor some 20 years ago, and he's been involved in foundation training for three decades now. He is the Educational Supervisor for the Jewsbury Scheme uh, in the Yorkshire Deanery and he has been the advisor since its inception. So he's a very, very experienced, knowledgeable practitioner. He has been involved with the GDC, with the BDA as well. And uh, these are previous posts, but he still continues to, to be involved in foundation training and influencing uh, the education, postgraduate education behind the scenes. I recently had a great chat with him. We talked everything from his background, his history in dentistry, but very, very uniquely, how has the training for today's graduate changed? We had a very, very candid chat about how undergraduate training has changed over the last two decades and how this is affecting our graduates today. The knock-on effect for foundation training, and now then, you know, the knock-on effect in practice. now. Recently, since this interview, uh, was recorded, Bupa uh, has effectively collapsed and they've closed 80 dental practices which are seen as unworkable sites. You know, we have an NHS contract which is not fit for purpose and, you know, the, the recruitment crisis is real. We cannot find dentists to, 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 to work in these, uh, in these clinics with these business models. So what is the future for dentistry as a whole, for NHS dentistry, for private dentistry indeed as well? So this is such a fabulous conversation that we had. It really, really does, you know, get to the root cause of a lot of things. Uh, it really was an education for me, uh, because, you know, we're all aware of the problems that exist and it's very, very easy to blame the government and say they need to throw money at it. But there is a deeper problem. So have a listen. Let me know what you think. I always appreciate your comments and uh, your, your your likes and your shares as well. I must say that from the first couple of episodes that were released with Paul Tipton, I've been overwhelmed at the response and it means that everything uh, that I've dreamt of doing and everything that we do here is is worthwhile. So I'm glad that you enjoy listening. So guys, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Tony. Chat soon. Thank you for coming in and... Uh... Agreeing to sit down and talk with us. Um, it's a pleasure to have you here, and uh, obviously you're an inspiration to me. You're an important person to me because you were my uh, uh, scheme advisor, believe it or not, 19 years ago.
0: I know yeah. we 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 need to stop counting years at a certain point in life, don't we? But well, yeah, and, and a lot's happened in 19 years. A lot's
1: happened in 19 years. So um, you know, it'd be great to to, to talk about um, you know where you started. Your experience over the last, well, 31 years now, uh, as a uh, well, being involved in vocational training. And I'd love to talk to you today about how you feel the profession has changed and what you've seen, especially with regards to the vocational training aspect of things and how it's affecting our young dentists uh, today. Uh, We'd love to talk about that. But can we start with you?
0: Can we start with you? So, how did you get into dentistry? Why did you become a dentist? You know? Oh, yeah, that's a very good question. I mean, a lot of us have had to make a decision at 18, mm-hmm. and it's quite a worrying decision because some people will have always known that's what they wanted to do, but the majority of us kind of fell into dentistry, really. And I wasn't dissimilar. You know, you you sit your A-levels, you have to apply. I actually applied for medicine first, right? Um, and then I was visiting my dentist, my dentist you know, they were asking what you're going to do, it's a future career. And I said, oh, I think I'll go into medicine. I've got the right A-levels and you know, I think I could do it. And they said, have you ever thought of dentistry? Mm-hmm. And I was sat there and I th- suddenly thought, oh, nobody's ever mentioned dentistry. Um, and the first thing I did when I left the dentist, half numb, was go to the local library, look up what the requirements were, what the curriculum was, and of course it wasn't dissimilar to what I was thinking about medicine. Cause I think in my head, I was thinking more being a surgeon than say a GP, but you know, practical skills, working with people, the academic side, the the biology and the science, everything just clicked with mm-hmm. me. It was like, Oh my goodness, that ticks all my boxes. I can't believe this is what dentistry does in four years and one term as it was at the time. Yeah. Um, but five years now. And I just thought, oh my goodness, I've applied for the wrong thing. I've applied for medicine. So you'd already applied for medicine. I'd set off my UCA forms and everything. Right. So very naively, I thought, oh, well, they'll understand. And I rang up the universities and said, excuse me, I hope you don't mind, but I've accidentally applied for the wrong thing, medicine. Would you mind swapping over for dentistry? And I couldn't understand why the phone kept hanging up on me. Right, um, And I'm thinking, is in my naive mind, well, it's similar. Surely they all work together and they're very friendly. And of course they're ultra competitive mm-hmm. for a similar type of graduates. And it wasn't the done thing. But then a part of me thought, well, what's the harm in trying? So I rang around pretty much every university that does dentistry and said, look, I've made a huge error. Um, I now realize I want to do dentistry. I've looked at the curriculum. Nobody mentioned it to me before. I know I'm going to do dentistry, and I want to do it at your university. Can you please give me an interview? And this was, I don't know, say March, April, May, before the course started in September. Yeah. Bear in mind, I hadn't put a looker application in. Two universities offered me an interview. Right. I think they were just curious about who is this crazy person. <laughs> of their own volition, just phoning from home (laughs) at university and saying, will you consider me? I've made a huge error. I I acknowledge that, but I now know this is what I want to do. Is it fair to say, um,
1: was dentistry seen as a backup option to medicine in
0: that era? Oh, I mean, usually, uh, because in the end I did get in and I was living with some medics, and of course you always get teased that you're a failed medic doing dentistry, you know. And then I would tease them and go, well, have you looked into it? Because there's there's not a lot of overtime. (laughs) We're not doing like midnight shifts and weekends, you know. And So we would always sort of tug at each other. I think there was probably a little bit of academic snobbery perhaps Mm -hmm. at the time. And in sports, how competitive medicine and dentistry are in in rugby or anything else, you know.
1: What was it then about dentistry that made you think as an 18-year-old, I need to do this
0: for the rest of my life? Well, yeah. My other option was to be an actuary. Um, just because I quite liked figures. and But when I looked into the detail, just something about, you're right, about dentistry excited me. And I think it was the working with people and being very scientific and being very practical. Yeah. And there's not many that put those three together and perhaps give you a, a degree of control. Because loads of people would say, you imagine at the time, other adults who are not into, because I have no family in dentistry, uh, would say, oh, why do you want to be a dentist? You know, they only saw the yeah. negative side of it. Ooh, why do you want to be a dentist? And, and that's well, changed a lot now as well, hasn't it? Oh, it because has. Because ha-
1: I'm sure you see on your scheme that many dentists now, young dentists coming through foundation training, probably come from a family of dentists. Am I right in assuming that? Or?
0: Um, I would say the proportion is higher. Yeah. Uh, and you might find that's true in medicine and some of the other professions. Mm-hmm. The proportion is higher, Uh, It's interesting though, I suspect there's probably an equal number where they were advised not to go into dentistry or they saw their parents come home, you know, stressed and yes, maybe have a nicer lifestyle, but there is a personal price sometimes to pay for that. And they would sort of see that. Certainly with my children... Um, cause they all thought, oh, we'll take the easy option. When they say work experience from school, see what job you'd like. All of mine go, oh, I'll, I'll come to your practice, dad. And uh, I go, if you come to my practice, I'm going to make you do stuff. Yeah. And I would get like models out and I'd do a crown prep. I'd make them, well, do fillings in cavities that I'd cut in models and I'd get them to play with materials and all that. And all of them actually did, did quite well. They saw the job as it was. Didn't set them on fire. No. Didn't set them on fire. And so I think maybe subconsciously or directly, I thought, no, I want you to pursue something that you'll be happy in because there'll be stresses in anything you do. But if you don't love what you do, it will eat you away. So you have to find what you like. And even for them at 18, how do you tell? Mm-hmm. You don't really. No, And that's, what, that's what's, what's really interesting that you knew that
1: you really passionately wanted to do this at 18. Yes. Yeah. So what did, what did your children end up doing? Are they going into So, uh,
0: all my three children are now adults. Yeah. Um, at the moment, one is in Japan teaching English. Uh, one is in America, and I think he'll stay there permanently. Yeah. So and my really my nice. eldest son Daniel yeah. his, his job is he does music production. So they're all doing non-dental stuff. But they're doing what they're passionate about. And yeah. but look how diverse it is. And I think that's the thing about today is there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah. There's a lot of different things you can do. The trick is finding out what you like because you will naturally get better at it because you want to and you'll enjoy that process even though it might be hard. Yeah.
1: No, that's that's you know hats off to you. You sound like a you're a great dad. And, uh, <laughs> I just, I mean, well, just, we, you, yeah. you're
0: a parent all the time, so you never stop worrying about no, them. No, absolutely. And it, but, I can but, relate to that, 100%. But they have to have that freedom to yeah. find their own way, sometimes yeah. make their own mistakes and recover from it, because that's part of growing up, and we've all had to do that too. No, absolutely. Um, so when you qualified, yes, there was no foundation training? No, I think it had just started somewhere. There might have been four voluntary schemes in the country. Because yeah. what happened when I qualified was... Yeah. Everyone applied for a house job. Everyone. Everyone. Right. Because that was seen as the best thing. Okay. Uh, the salary wasn't brilliant and all the rest, but you got a house job either because they wanted to keep you on because they felt you did need a bit more support. So right. that might be one out of the six jobs. The other five, it's it's because, wow, they think really highly of you. So many people have applied. Uh, they're going to kind of cream off the best, if you like, and then you're going to get really good at oral surgery or restorative or... Even at the time, ortho. I mean, we did ortho as undergrads. Yeah. We presented fixed ortho patients yeah. <laughs> in finals, you know. So we had a lot of clinical experience compared to now, and we can discuss that a bit later. But mm. um, you come out of dental school and you think, okay, if I'm not doing the house job, I need to find a practice. And in effect, you did look for a practice that was kind of a bit like what vocational training at the time and foundation training now is is trying to deliver a, a supportive practice that will let you ease into it, not put you under too much pressure, but actually help you become self-sufficient in practice. Did so that exist? It did. did it, it did. And I found it. <clears throat> uh, and it was in Bradford. So that was you know my hometown. So uh, I was extremely fortunate. It's one of those, I thought I knew what I was looking for. So with a bit of good luck and a bit of... Enough criteria to reject the ones that were just interested in someone going there, working hard, earning a lot of money, but not getting any work satisfaction. At least I could eliminate those when I went to visit them. But out of the other, say, two or three opportunities I had, it was a bit of potluck finding the right one. So, uh, But they were very supportive, very helpful, very keen to get a new dentist in there such that they were willing to spend that extra time just supportively but without smothering. You know, Mm -hmm. it's that balance, isn't it? It's always difficult. Uh, So I was extremely fortunate. I got a very good start in a general dental practice. And I think year two, um, I was looking for somewhere to live. And I was driving around Haworth, beautiful little village, the steam trains run, the Brontes of Haworth. It's a bit of a touristy destination. It's in the base of the Pennines. It's still a Bradford postcode, but it's just right out on the fringes. Uh, but a, a lovely little village, not quite stuck in time, but you know, it still had some character and I was looking around for somewhere to live and I drove past this, um, old hairdressers for a for sale sign on it. And I was laughing to myself cause I'd just been on a course where they were saying, um, and the ideal place to have a dental practice is, you know, on a main bus route yeah. near a doctor's or a post office, uh, Reasonably easy to get to for a community, blah blah blah. And I was laughing to myself because as I drove past the hairdressers, I was thinking, "Oh, that meets all that criteria, but it's a hairdresser's." And then, but I looked around, I didn't see anywhere suitable for a home. And uh, I went back and I thought, oh, "I'll just look see how many dentists are in Haworth. It's a nice place. Um, it's probably two, three, four. It's probably over dentisted because you know it's great." And I looked up zero, right. no dentists. I'm thinking, that can't be right. So I went and checked the lists again. I phoned up Bradford Council and go, "Uh, I'm not sure if I'm getting this right, but I'm not showing up any dentist in Howarth. Surely there's a dentist in Like, Well, there used to be one 20 years ago and he died, uh, and there's not been one since. Everybody goes to Keithley, which is the next big town, and it is a big town, 60, 70, 80,000 population. Of course, there's two or three practices, and now today there's two or three big corporates, you know, but it's that... So every, it acted like a, a draw for all the villages in the area would go to uh, Keithley for their you know, medical, dental, whatever. So I suddenly thought, oh, my God, that would make a great practice. So I went and had a look and see what price they wanted. And it was pretty dilapidated inside. But I just thought, well, if you're doing a dental practice, you're probably going to gut it all anyway yeah. you know, and do, set it up for a dental practice. So I thought, I know, I'll, I'll apply for planning permission. So I went to Bradford Council and I said, and because it was already a business, it it was more like a change of use than it was, oh, changing the residential and maybe there's a bit more hurdles. So I applied for that and I was so proud of myself and I'd agreed a price uh, with the people that if this comes through for a dental practice, I'll pay you full asking price and it will go through and everything will be great. And then you had those sleepless nights of, you know, can I afford it? Am I doing the right thing? I've only been qualified two years. What am I thinking? But it's... I recognized it was in the right place. You know they say, don't they now? Location, location, location. And it just ticked all. So it probably was too early for me, but everything else was right. But a big thing happened next. And this was my naivety, of course, just being qualified two years. I don't know if most people know, when you do planning permission, it goes public. Right. Three other dentists tried to gazump it. Right. Okay. Because suddenly they thought, oh, somebody's Good applying for planning permission. Yeah, yeah. It must have potential. Oh, and of course, if anyone looked at it, it'd be like, oh, it's on a main road, main bus route, next to a doctor's and a post office, or whatever. <laughs> you know, yeah, ticks all the boxes. Let's go in and offer more. So of course now the owners are ringing me up saying, oh, we're getting all these extra offers above asking price, and you know, so obviously we're gonna consider those. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, no, no. We had a deal. We had a deal. We ended up in this Chinese auction thing where you're blindly trying to outbid people that you don't even know what their real bids are. You've just been told this. I'm like, oh, I've, I've opened up a hornet's nest here. And I, I don't know if there was a cleverer way to do it at the time, but I should have been prepared and I wasn't. And apparently these other dentists, they were turning up with their bank manager and walking them around. And the owners were saying, yeah, we had the bank manager you say, yeah, you can have that loan, no problem. You know, Mm. and of course, I hadn't walked around with a bank manager or anything. So how how did you nail it then? How did you Well, I suppose I had to do, I won't say a bluff, but I just had to go in and say, right, look, this is the price I'm paying. It's 20% more than you were asking. You wouldn't have had this other interest had I not applied for planning permission. And morally and ethically and all, you know, I just poured it on. You know, this is the right thing to do. And then of course, they fortunately, they were pretty good people. They came back to me and said, okay, you're right. Uh, and you're not in a chain, you're not waiting for, I did have a bank loan, but it it was all set up. Um, But you've got to complete in six weeks. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. And if you're six weeks and one day, we're going with the alternative. I said, fine. And I walked out the door, having no idea if it could be done in six weeks or not. But of course, I'm on the blower to solicitors and everyone, this has to be done or I lose it. Uh, And I think it was like, just the week before it all got done. Yeah. But I was sweating all yeah. the time. And then of course you sat there thinking, great, I've overpaid for this. Obviously 31 years looking yeah. back, yeah. I wish I'd bought the whole flaming street a property, yeah. you know. <laughs> Why was I worrying about 20% of a relatively low price 30 odd years ago? But at the time it was everything I had and more. Oh you know, so to yeah, me it definitely. was everything. And of course you then you're looking at it and thinking, okay, this basic place is falling down. <laughs> what have I done? You know, yeah. um, they're the best places. though. They're the best places. They're so, best places. so That's basically, we stripped buy. it out. Yeah, opened the doors, and this was in the days you couldn't advertise. Mm-hmm. The signs on the outside, the letters—I can't remember—they couldn't be more than four inches high. This is specifically your dentistry. Perhaps, yeah. yeah, the GDC would say yeah. uh, it's it's unethical to advertise. It's this. It's that. It, it demeans the profession. Mm-hmm. The letters on your Plate can only be certain height. Um, Mm. In the yellow pages, you can only have a factual entry. You know, you can't say you do tooth whitening or whatever it was at the time or, you know. So, and and we're opening up as a squat, basically. So I was working part-time in one practice as an associate and then gradually building it up. It's one of those, it's easy now to say, oh, I needn't have worried. But, you know, you borrow all this money, you've rushed it through, you've overpaid, you've gutted the place. Now you're in mega debt. Yeah. And I think the first day we had four patients. And that was literally like doing, I won't say a leaflet drop round the village. But the good thing about a village is gossip spreads quick. So all you had to do was tell half a dozen people and zoom. You know, and you have an open day, you invite people in, have a cup of tea, have a look around, have a chat. And gradually it took about a year yeah. for it to become what I would say viable, where I was paying the bills. And that's the thing with a squat, isn't it? You you don't know the time scale of, you know, the break-even and then obviously you don't know its potential after that so you are taking a risk so other things have to be right for you to to sit in there and then i lived above so i sacrificed the house so you found, you found a place to live as so well i though. found a place to live yeah, yeah. and and the cause people go oh god you live above people will be knocking on your door middle of the weekend and all. i found them very respectful actually right. of that you know an occasional emergency yes but at the time you were glad of the business you know so you didn't mind so, yeah, so that that was my journey with the practice there. That's amazing. You know,
1: just to digress, because I get asked this all the time. Um, when are you ready to buy a dental practice? How do you know the <laughs> conditions are right to buy a dental? Sure. How do you know it's going to work? And I think you've just explained it so beautifully there. I just don't think you know, do you? And and there is no such thing as a right time to buy. There is no such thing as the ideal business to buy. You just don't know. And I think that's the thing about entrepreneurship, isn't it? That you've just got to just take that risk and just go for it. And you don't know how it's going to work out.
0: No, you control the things that you can. Yeah, But there's still a lot you are doing in good faith, really. But if the most important things seem to be right, and you might call it a gut feeling, but if it's enough to overcome that fear then it is probably the right thing for you. Yeah. It might not necessarily be the right thing for somebody else. So yes, there comes a judgment call where you make that decision. Um, you could say that about meeting your life partner. Mm-hmm. You could say that about you know relocating. You could say that about choosing between two jobs. There's, there's only so much preparation you can do. And then the rest you have to go by what feels right for me and then commit to it really. Um, but yeah, I think if you wait for everything to be perfect, you'll probably not end up doing many things. Absolutely. So you get things as, as good as you can. And then if you feel, yes, I can compensate for the other third, I've done the two thirds, the other third is going to take hard work, a little bit of luck, but again, sometimes the harder you work, the more luckier you get and so on. Absolutely. Law of attraction, if you've ever heard of that. Yeah, in a way, <laughs> yeah. in many ways.
1: Guys, as you know, I am the lead tutor of the Hedro Academy Vertical Preparation course. Now, we have put together this beautiful vertical preparation kit, which has been beautifully made by former Dental Supplies. Simon at Former has kindly agreed to give one lucky winner uh, of this podcast, a kit completely, completely free of charge, uh, which retails normally at 220 pounds plus fat. So all you have to do to win one of these fantastic vertical preparation kits is just give us a like, uh, subscribe to the podcast and share it, and leave a comment below, and we will pick one lucky winner every podcast, and uh, Burkitt will be finding itself uh, in your clinic. Okay, so yeah, great guys. The Horacle Burkit by Hedro Academy and former Dental Supplies. You got involved in foundation
0: training initially in what year was that? Oh, well, that was 1991. But just before that, yeah. uh, so I started in this practice, and I, obviously I had some spare time because it wasn't full time. Yeah. Uh, and a job came up at Leeds Dental Institute right. to be a clinical demonstrator. So now I'm thinking, oh my God, I've been qualified two and a half years now. <laughs> got my own practice how on earth would they accept me to teach dental school? I've only been qualified two and a half years, but I thought I'll apply for it, for the experience of having the interview, see what they're looking for. And then who knows, maybe in four or five years, I'll you know think of applying properly when I'm established at the practice. So I went along for the interview, which was fairly informal. They walked me around the departments um, and you know they would just ask me things about what am I doing now? And I'd be like, oh, I've just bought a practice. And you could see them looking like, Okay, you've been qualified two and a half years, what the hell? And uh, why do you want to do the job? And, and it is true that I did kind of want to share and help my fellow students because I knew what it was like when I graduated. I really appreciated the help mm-hmm. from the, the certain staff we'd always go queue up for and, and so on. And um, So, yeah, it was just something I felt that I want to get into that. I guess to balance that academic side, there was a part of me that still wanted a little academic stimulation and challenge um, and they just, the, I remember one of the key questions they asked me was, do you still use rubber dam?
1: Mm-hmm. I said,
0: well, actually I do. I'm, I'm quite a big fan of it now. Now I've got good at getting it on quick and my nurses helped me with it. Um, I love it. And I said, well, when can you start? <laughs> I'm like, oh, um, well, you know, I thought I don't want to seem too keen like tomorrow, you know? So I said, oh, no, it'll have to be a couple of weeks. I've got a lot to organize. I think myself I could start next week, but yeah. I'll say a couple of weeks, play hard to get a little bit. And I said, um, yeah, yeah, that'll be fine. So, um, yeah, so how about Tuesday afternoons or whatever? And I said, great. So along I went, and I turned up Tuesday afternoon and thought, oh, no, I'm going to get, I'm going to be exposed as this big fraud. What do I know? I've been qualified two and a half years, and some student's going to say all these references to me, and I'm going to look like an idiot compared to the consultants, because at the time, the consultants were on the clinic, you yeah. know? So... Oh, so of course you get that fear and that dread, that self-doubt, you know, eats away at you sometimes. So I went in and I thought, well, I'll give it my best shots, you know, and and I met this consultant and I won't say any names, but, uh, you know, I said, look, I'm just a little bit concerned. I haven't done this before. Can can I kind of shadow you a bit and learn the ropes? And he goes, sure, I'll show you how to do it. I've been doing this job, you know, and of course, he's got all these letters after his name and, and, you know, I think, oh God, I'm in the presence of a dental God here. I'm really going to learn a lot. And I'll never forget this. The first student that asked for help was for a lining. Can you come check my lining? Yeah. Uh, In the days when they used to do thick linings. And he went over and he had a look. He looked at the cavity. He looked at me. He looked at the cavity. And he said in a loud voice, and I'll never forget this, it looks like a pigeon has shattered that. (laughs) And walked off. (laughs) And I'm still there, like, in my mind, my jaw's on the floor, but in my mind, I'm trying to look calm. Uh, I'm looking at the student who's just looked devastated, even though they had a mask on, you could just tell. And I'm looking at the patient, whose eyes were like wide open like Bambi, (laughs) sort of saying, what what does he mean? What does he mean? And I, I just said, can I just have a look? And I looked, and... Graphically, that was quite a good description. It was just kind of everywhere up the side of the walls. So I just said, "Um, Yes, you've just been a bit extra generous, you know, with it. If you just trim it off the side of the walls, uh, the base is very good. It's just the walls, you know, if you just trim it, you've just been a bit generous, really. And I walked away and I thought, What on earth was I worried about? Mm -hmm. What was I worried about? Just treat your fellow colleagues as decent human beings. don't matter if they're students or consultants or whoever. I learned very quickly. Dentistry is first and foremost a people skills activity.
1: Communication. Absolutely. Hundred percent. So, you got involved in <clears throat> in uh, in foundation training initially in 1991. Is that correct? Oh yes. So you told me uh, when we're communicating before the podcast that uh, it was voluntary. The yeah, I know, it's incredible. So isn't it? so so please tell me how how did that come about? And what was what was the motivation behind that? What was the motivation behind joining? Yes. Was it an extension of your time as a Leeds Dental
0: Institute demonstrator? Pretty pretty <clears throat> much. And again, a job came up
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and I think it said something like, You had to have a minimum of, I don't know, four years experience in practice. And I was like, four and a half. You know, yeah. it was one of those, oh my God, I'm sneaking over the line here. Um and of course it went reasonably well. But I couldn't do the demonstrating and, in effect, now move to postgraduate training for mm-hmm. when the graduates come out. So when I did get appointed, I had to give up the undergraduate bit to do right. the postgraduate bit. Okay. But that that was a kind of natural progression. And I think did help me tremendously understand where the graduates were coming from yeah. and what their challenges were leaving university to transition into a practice environment. And they worry terribly about this, too, because it is a very different environment with different challenges, So, um, but it was voluntary at the time. And I think um, all the dental organizations and the dental schools and um, I'm trying to think what it was. It wasn't Health Education England. It was, uh, anyway, there was a VT advisory board and they were like, look, we think this is a good transition. We can't make people do it, but we've got some funding to salary them for a year and give them support so they can learn at a pace so, at the end of the year, they're much better prepared for practice, mm-hmm. and it was voluntary, and I think a lot of graduates when they graduated, they thought, "Well, that looks quite attractive, they kind of had insight to know that's what I need, yeah and although you could have gone straight into practice again, unless you found the right supportive practice, it could be a disaster well, so good. a lot chose yeah. to, and when it got to seventy five percent yeah of graduates were choosing yeah to do foundation training. What they tried to do then was say, well, look, we want funding for 100%, but the only way we can do that is if to get an NHS performer number, you have to do this, then the NHS has to allocate the funding to have enough places for everyone who graduates, who chooses to do it. And so that's how it transitioned from voluntary to becoming um, compulsory if you want an NHS number. You could do private dentistry without it. But obviously, that's not usually advised unless you're going abroad or whatever.
1: Could you just paint the picture? Before then, uh, <coughs> a VT became a thing.
0: Yes. What
1: was the the typical practice like? You know, you qualified because private dentistry wasn't, um, you know, as mainstream as it is now. Oh, no. I'm, I'm presumed. So it was pretty much you would go into an NHS practice. You know, the stories of, I mean, it was the same when I first graduated as well. And we're going back to 2004. You know, it was typical to see. 30 to 40 patients a day. Was that the landscape when you qualified? Yeah, frightening. It's frightening looking back. I know, and I don't know how I used to do it. But uh, you know, it used to be a case of you would go from seeing maybe four or six patients a day in hospital, and that's pushing it as a fifth year
0: or four and a half years. It is pushing it because today they're looking to see two or three. Two or three. Or well, they're nursing for the other dentist in the yeah. afternoon, the dental student in the afternoon. Yeah. And and
1: and then to suddenly just go into 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 40 patients a day. So surely there must have been some mistakes and surely there must have been a need for this. And this is why it came about, right?
0: Yes. I think, you know, a lot of practice probably thought they were being gentle on you, just throwing you into 20 patients yeah. a day. And that, that was literally a baptism of fire mm-hmm. for people. It, it stressed them out. It burned them out. And... Um, unless they managed it very carefully, yeah, they, they would either s- just cut the time by cutting the good things in dentistry, which any fool can do some quicker by not doing everything they should, cutting um, corners, or yeah. you you end up stressing and damaging your own health and well being, mm-hmm. and you go home very stressed. And certainly at the time, you know, like alcoholism and depression and all these things were very prevalent. In in dentistry, you know, it was frightening because I think dentists, vets, and pharmacists, you know, they were always at the 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 top of the suicide list or the you know mental health Mm -hmm. problems list, and certainly mega stress list. And yes, something had to give, and it was either the quality of the patient care, your mental well being, or just not enjoying the job and you know taking it out on others others taking it out on you and you could see how that could quickly deteriorate. So there was definitely seen it as a need. yeah so overall, I think it was a good thing that um, you know it became compulsory in the sense of the funding is assured if you meet the criteria to join the scheme. And frankly the feedback was, yes, this is great. Interestingly, those that joined the scheme still found it hard work yeah. <laughs> because it was still a jump from graduation. But compared to just going straight into practice, I, I think we were losing and we would have probably lost a lot of the profession. Um, either as a, a medical casualty or just as a I'm leaving to pursue another career because yeah. this is they can tell it's burning them out. So so we were fortunate in the sense of along came foundation training. That's still made it difficult when you left foundation training because that environment still existed and it was a case of how do you cope with that?
1: I would say that foundation training for me really, really actually did prepare me well for general practice because the whole scheme was geared towards NHS dentistry, you know, record keeping. It was in line with what was the FGDP key skills at the time, record keeping radiography, you know, a tiny bit of clinical photography, but it was all about preparing you for general practice. Yes, I felt that changed a little bit. I felt that changed a little bit. I noticed a bit of a shift, and this is just my observations. So tell me if this is a distorted observation, but uh, I was a, I was trained myself because I was very inspired by yourself and your colleagues, and you know, as well the need to give back to the profession. You know, I, I there became, is something yeah.
0: amazingly satisfying about that, isn't no, it? You know, helping another colleague. Hundred yeah. percent.
1: And yeah. um, you know, so I was a foundation trainer. I, I'm sorry I use these terms really loosely because it was a VT right. trainer. Yeah, just but so we all know time. hopefully, hopefully, um, you know what we're talking about. But I was a trainer for a decade. Yeah. Uh and uh, I kind of noticed a shift in attitudes though around the 2015-2016 mark, which is why I really wanted to call you in today to talk about this where it went from being, I'm going to do foundation training because I need to do it or want to do it. and I want to learn the skills to become a good competent general practitioner and go into dentistry to something that, well, I don't really want to do this anyway. I'm not going to be you know, working in dentistry for too long and especially not on the NHS. You know, I want to be an all singing, all dancing, private cosmetic dentist, because on Instagram, I'm seeing smile makeovers, whitening, bonding, and this is what I'm going to be doing. And all this other stuff is beneath me kind of thing. Maybe that's been a bit harsh, but I just noticed it became more and more and more difficult. Uh, I wouldn't say to train these people, but I just noticed a shift in attitude. Okay. So I don't know if you've noticed that. I don't know if that's something that you relate
0: to at all. Well... There's a few things going on here. Go on. So firstly, the way, uh, shall we say, my younger colleagues communicate now Mm -hmm. is nearly all social media. Right. Yeah. Nearly all. And if you try and get these young people to attend an LDC meeting or a, a postgraduate course or whatever, there's going to have to be a really special reason for them to go. Because- hey, they can just go on YouTube, they can ask Google or chat GPT now or whatever. And they're used to doing what I call a a collaborative approach to their uh, progress now. And traditional stuff like uh, courses, uh, meeting with their colleagues, making uh, definitive career plans. For us, uh, shall we say, more mature dentists, Mm -hmm. Um, work tends to be a big center of our lives, Mm -hmm. very much so. And then we try and squeeze family time and other things in and, you know, relaxing or socializing. That is not the case with the current generation. Work is a thing they do alongside life. Right. It's not quite an add-on like the appendix is, in your GI tract, but it's certainly no more equal than what's going on. So in their mind, it's a, yeah, I do my nine to five. I do this. It's just a job. All this other stuff, the quality of life stuff is more important. And I guess there's a part of me that thinks, well, that slightly annoys me because we always put up with extra hours and extra hardship on driving the profession to be successful at work. Mm. And now you seem to be demoting that. But at the same time, our quality of life balance probably wasn't good, mm. and there needs to be a meeting in between. So I suspect generationally, you're picking this up. Now, the trouble with social media is, as you know, very few people post, hey, this is my big cock-up today. Yeah. <laughs> this is what didn't go well last week. This is a complaint I had, although actually people do anonymously post, how do I handle this? It's difficult. And they value that input, even though it might be on Facebook, which is not always the most authoritative source. But they value that probably more than they would, uh, I don't know, looking at textbooks or even speaking to their indemnity provider. It's interesting, isn't it? There's there's that shift. Going back to
1: my original question, though, about my personal um, vision, my personal view of how I saw that shift, specifically little things like, You know, on the foundation training scheme, they started to introduce stuff like photography, um, stuff like composite onlays, you know, ceramic onlays. And then I was having foundation dentists come back to my NHS practice. I mean, I've sold that practice now, but at the time it was an NHS practice. And they're wanting to do this uh, advanced dentistry on NHS patients. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, you see? So listening to what you're saying now, you're preparing dentist now to work in mixed practice. Is that correct?
0: I think so. The yeah. obviously it's an NHS funded scheme. Yeah. Uh the core of it is NHS. And of course that's where you're going to get your most basic dental training be it perio, yeah. caries, um just the overall preventive care, you know, and frankly if you look at what a foundation dentist does certainly in Yorkshire, mm-hmm. I would still say Let's say seventy to ninety percent is still focused at NHS. Yeah. But there's some things the NHS doesn't do yeah. that would be beneficial to the patient. And that could be uh, tooth whining or whatever. It could be that uh, some things have a bit more of a, a cosmetic component. That that is still very good for the patient, but it's just not allowed on the NHS. Sure. And then there are some patients who are choosing. Uh, shall we say, more expensive laboratory work or something more advanced. And that has to be done privately. And one of the favourite pieces of paperwork is the (laughs) FP17DC on the NHS. And We all don't like paperwork, but it's actually one of the better designed things because even if you do a paper copy, uh, it's NCR'd, so whatever you write on the top gets copied underneath. It has a basic outline and treatment plan it has an option for private alternatives, and you sign it at the bottom and give it to the patient. So you're kind of covering uh, certainly the first part of the consent process. You're certainly being very upfront with costs. You're certainly being very upfront with offering some private options. And there is an argument, if you don't offer private options, have you got full consent? Mm. Because you haven't actually described all the things that's possible. I mean, Even for a missing tooth, an implant's possible. You might not be doing it in primary dental care on the NHS, but it's possible and the patient should know. So if you follow the FP17DC, the NHS already makes private provision and it does that in um, foundation training because you have to be prepared for Mm -hmm. primary dental care. I think the other thing is, I think politically sometimes people get stuck on this oh, but if it's an NHS scheme, shouldn't it be 100% NHS and all Mm. the rest? What you have to remember, I think, with dentistry is just zoom out a bit, is every single private patient or every single private item of treatment that's done is taking a burden off the NHS system because it's already Mm. overloaded. It's already under-budgeted. It can't cope with the existing demand. If every private patient today... Have to go back into the NHS system. Where's the money to pay for that? It isn't there. It'd be existing resources. Mm-hmm. So suddenly, all these people would struggle with access. Well, they wouldn't have it. And a part, this is part of the reason why people are moving private, because they'd rather pay for something they want more on their terms. Mm-hmm. Now, in foundation training, to not prepare uh, a young dentist for that discussion and to give full patient choice would actually be lacking in some of the GDC standards when it comes to um consent and doing patient centered care and acting as it quite clearly states throughout all its documents patient's best interests mm-hmm. patient's best interest isn't necessarily uh restricting choice or not mentioning something uh, or referral or whatever so this is actually part of patient centered care your point about do the younger generation um have a slightly different focus and maybe because of social media and because they see more glamorous dentistry being done, they want a piece of that because mm-hmm. it's sexy yeah. and it's cool. And when they go back to their parents or their friends and go, yeah, I'm on an implants course. I'm learning implants. Whereas if it's, oh, well, actually I'm going back to learning how to make dentures fit because I was never really very good at that. And it's really challenging. It doesn't sound quite as sexy, does it? It doesn't. And I get that. But it might be more useful. (laughs) I get that. No, I 100% get that.
1: Um, I think the reason why I'm doing this in the first place and talking to, to, to wise people like yourself is because I can just see almost like a layer. Yes, there's that sexy layer. But then there's this level of dissatisfaction, this level of anxiety under the surface. And you've just touched on that. You know, a few moments ago, that we're looking at guys now, guys and girls who are 45 to 90,000 pounds in debt by the time they qualify. But then at the same time, and I don't know where this comes from, so I just want to discuss this with you. My generation, maybe your generation, earlier generations, whatever, there was that need, and I think you've addressed that actually work is not central to their lives anymore. But if there was that level of debt, there was that need to get the job Mm. done and pay back that loan as quickly as we can. These guys now, I really feel for them. They've got super debts, okay? But then they're looking for jobs where they are, if it's an NHS job as their first job. Because, I mean, I've had first-hand experience of this because uh, this is one of the reasons why I sold my practice, actually. It was getting so difficult to recruit anybody who would want to take on a full-time job at... Six thousand, six and a half thousand UDAs. I was way too much. They were looking for five days a week, three thousand UDAs as a business owner at the time. How could I make that work? How could I accommodate a full time associate who wanted to do yeah, three thousand yeah. UDAs? So there's an element yeah.
0: of slight naivety as well, because you've got to bear in mind they come out of dental school uh, with almost zero business skills. Yeah. And in fact, almost zero financial knowledge, you know, unless they've got that from other family members somehow, or uh, there's the odd dental student that has run their own business, you know, but generally they have no idea even about pay as you earn and taxes and Mm -hmm. things. So what we've started doing in foundation training in our schemes now in Yorkshire is we have uh, financial modules. Right. Okay. And we have three through the year and we try and make them appropriate at the time. So if you imagine the first one is just like P-A-Y-E and, how the tax system works, and so on and so forth, just so they can understand it. The second one, yeah, there's the NHS pension scheme that nobody understands, <laughs> but uh, we simplify yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And we have an accountant who's with us doing this. Yeah. Um, and then the third one is becoming an associate, becoming self-employed, all of those kind of things, saving for tax and how you sort of plan um, your finances in a very different way when you're self-employed compared to being employed. Because we found that these were just the key skills and the key worries that we're missing. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've put that in and that's part of uh, what we call the uh, management and leadership domain. Cause in, in foundation dentistry, we cover four areas. Uh, Clinical is the obvious one, yeah, but also uh, professionalism, also um, management and leadership. And of course, uh, you know, communication skills and so on. So, your observation with the UDAs is very interesting because I did a survey um, of foundation dentists last year Yeah. and said, okay, what what's your ideal job looking like? And first of all, they want a four-day week, not a five-day week. Mm-hmm. So whether that's the traditionally what were the Fridays, although the days get mixed up during the week now yeah. for education, but they actually value that, and they want to use that fifth day for their own self-development or recuperation or whatever it is. So they're trying to get that balance back that way. They certainly don't want to do 7,000 UDAs. They want to do half that, yeah, 3,500, so that three to 4,000 sort of range. Um, and, yes, they want to do some private as well. Mm-hmm. So when I did the maths, and at the time that was, I think, 11-pound UDA or whatever, I was kind of showing them that, Actually, it's a bit like staying where they are on foundation training (laughs) at that salary, but without the same support or Mm. it's not salaried and guaranteed, this is a self-employed status now. And it was a bit of a shocker for them Mm -hmm. when I fed that back. This is the reality here of what one needs to do. But you're right. They are not of the mindset of doing 7,000 UDAs. Not the way it's set up now. And not because they're coming in at the bottom end of practice and perhaps getting the more new patients or high needs patients Mm or the ones that have been languishing on 111 waiting lists for five years. They might also be the most unreliable and so on. Whereas a practice that um, has a good mix based, that has been treating similar patients for a while, if they have a proportion of those and then see new patients as well, and it, it can balance. But what you what we probably have to do is almost think in terms in our heads that we're almost offering foundation year two and foundation year three in practice, and then becoming what we used to think of as a traditional associate. Mm-hmm. And I think they need that transition too.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's getting, you know, the transition to becoming that general practitioner, whatever you want to call it, it's getting longer. And I, that's another thing I recall from being a trainer uh, a few years back. Is the other thing I was observing, and it's not just you know through the VT schemes. it's it's, it's from undergraduate level as well. They they're, they're being trained less and less clinically. Am I, is that is that a correct observation?
0: <clears throat> this is a really hot political topic. Okay, we're not the dental going schools. politics. Yeah. Well, we won't do the political bit. Yeah. But definitely, dental education has changed massively, mm. and where the emphasis is put. Has changed massively. And certainly in the past, when you look at, say, the volume of dentistry done at undergraduate level, there's a, a trend that it was higher experience the more years you go back. Now, the dental schools will argue with this because it depends how you count things. So if, if you count a root canal treatment as um, in the emergency clinic, you file the canal and then in a normal clinic, you filled the canal in someone else. Mm-hmm. That will count as a root treatment, even though it wasn't the same person or even the same tooth. So it's got a lot more fragmented. And what the dental educationalists will argue is, well, we're measuring competence. So if, if you break down a root canal treatment to you know, clean, shape, fill, restore, whether it's the same person and same tooth, or whether they're done as separate events... Mm-hmm. Different people, at different times, they all add up to the same thing. So as long as we get them there, that's all that matters. But actually, it's not really the same thing. You know, it's a substitute for the same thing. It's a bit like saying, uh, can you imagine if you did the impressions for a dent- full denture on one patient, yeah, and a bite on another patient, on another patient, and a yeah. and yeah. suddenly it's like, oh, hang on, yeah, 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 all those. Challenges and they're not the same as following it through and having a successful outcome. And I have some sympathy with the dental schools because they had to double student numbers; didn't have a lot of choice. The dental schools weren't built for double the numbers. They certainly didn't get to double the staff or the nurses that support them. Why did they have to double the numbers? Because there became a workforce crisis. Um, (laughs) Can you believe? Like in the nineties, they closed several dental schools. Okay. (laughs) Because they said. Hey, prevention's going to work. We're not going to need many dentists in the future. Yeah. <laughs> At the moment, we can't get enough. Yeah. Can't even have access. There's millions who haven't even seen a dentist. You know. So that's that was totally misplaced because they thought, oh, well, fluoride's going to fix caries and perio. Oh, well, people are just going to clean the gums better. And yeah. What What do we need GDPs for? You know
1: what? that does ring a bell. I remember when I was an undergraduate. Uh, and I remember a demonstrator saying to me, I feel sorry for you guys because you're not going to have any dentistry to do. And we were just like, what, do, what What do you mean? And he was like, well, you know, people are keeping their teeth longer and brushing their teeth better, so there's not going to be any caries for you guys to treat. And we were all, like, really, like, really disappointed. And um, look where we are now, eh? Yes. Um, <laughs> people will always need a dentist. And even now, yeah,
0: yeah you're right. You're absolutely right. They'll always need us. Um, just what we might be providing and what the patient uh, focused needs are will shift.
1: Hi guys, are you thinking about getting into dental implantology? Well, if you didn't know, I'm one of the founding members of Unique Implant Training. Unique Implant Training is now in its fifth year and we are now fully EduCall accredited to diploma level, which is an 18 month diploma, the only 18 month implant diploma currently in the UK. So if you want to begin your implant journey, please don't hesitate to give us a call. Find us at www.uniqueimplanttraining.co.uk. We look forward to seeing you soon. Can I close? When I say close, we're probably going to be talking about this for a good few minutes. But can we kind of get some sort of a roadmap to joining everything up and I know. It's we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna fix the world in one day. However, we've just talked about, and my main concern was observing how we have such dissatisfaction amongst, particularly our younger dentists in the dental yes. profession. But obviously, you know, I I, I talked to more experienced dentists, and they've got a level of dissatisfaction as well. Uh, but we've touched on the fact that undergraduate training is not the same as it used to be because we've increased the number of people being trained, but the staff hasn't followed suit. A lot of that training has now moved on to foundation training where a lot of these people are doing procedures for the, well people, I say lots of dentists are doing procedures more or less for the first time in their training practices. And, and then they want to qualify and uh, I say qualify I, I should say finish foundation training want jobs where they're not doing so many UDAs as we maybe did 20 years ago. And I suppose that comes down to is the NHS fit for purpose? Because I mean, we do a letter every year, don't we? I mean, you 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 draft it and we all sign it. Sir, the 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 the, the um the uh, the system is just not fit for purpose, you know? So how do we fix this? How do we make everything marry up? How do we make our our undergraduates better? prepared? How do we utilize foundation training to make them better prepared for a real world job, should we say? And, you know, is the NHS going to change anytime soon to make the environment for dentists a better environment to work in and provide the solutions that the patients need and deserve? That's a hell of a long question, I know, but
0: what do you think? In one sentence? (laughs) (laughs) No, let's talk about it. it. Yeah. And you are kind of right in the sense of what what do we need to do? What are the barriers? And the thing is, when you look, you've just mentioned a number of things from being an undergraduate right through to working in systems oh, that I are know, not fit I for know. purpose. Yeah, And you're right. Every, every part has a, a deficiency and they, are, they compound. They compound mm-hmm. to make people feel dissatisfied as a profession because they're frustrated It's not easy to identify, say, one big thing that they could make a plan to address because it's numerous things that are compounding together to frustrate us from being, to reaching our full potential as a profession and as professionals. So I think undergraduate has to look at itself, and, and there are challenges, has to look at itself to say, what kind of graduate is it preparing? What's it preparing this graduate for? it needs a relook. And of course, do we expect the graduate to be fully clinically competent in all the different areas on graduation? And the reality check, I would agree with you is, I doubt they are. Mm -hmm. I doubt they are. Now, I can't produce exact data for every student, Mm -hmm. but we know as in foundation training, as the consumer of new graduates, that you're right, we're now spending what used to be first month now then the first three months now the first six months getting them even clinically competent at removing caries Mm -hmm. now when we do feedbacks from foundation dentists the number of times of i'm now confident that i'm removing the right amount of caries in the right way to have a sustainable restoration it's on the one hand it's kind of slightly frightening Mm -hmm. on the other hand. When you look at their actual clinical experience of doing this and the fact that it's not easy to know when this care is near a pulp, at what point do you stop? As three dentists, you'll get four opinions okay. from experience, yeah, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so some things aren't easy. It sounds easy, but it isn't. Get the ADJ clean. Yes, of course. But near the pulp, how far dare you go? And what some people leave as care is, is mush. And no, that's too mushy. Uh, And then it's others are like, yeah, I like to drill it till nothing comes away. Well, is that harder than it needs to be? And obviously the truth is somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. But they're not easy things to do. But I think there's certain things we should expect of a a dental graduate to be not just competent, but the word is proficient Mm -hmm. to do. So that care is removable, uh, care is removal repeatedly in different situations consistently well, that will take certain numbers of experiences to demonstrate. And I feel if they were coming into foundation training at that level, and we know that, in a kind of more honest and open and transparent way, then we can develop those skills. Whereas we now spend the first month of foundation training, finding out where the gaps are in their training, finding out where they're not confident or proficient or even competent, Mm -hmm. because they might have been competent doing a root canal in fourth year, but Mm. they haven't done it for a year. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly they have an access on a tooth that's a a different one to what they've done. So all these things, we we have to actually know what we're getting. And we have to help realistically the undergraduate dental schools deliver that despite being a bit short staffed. I'll tell you a quick story if I may. Um, I remember once, and I won't mention any dental schools or anything, seeing a report, where they were comparing the clinical experience of one dental school undergraduates with another. And basically, uh, Dental School B was providing something like 20% more actual clinical experiences pretty much across the board for their dental students. You and I would think, well done, Dental School B. Mm -hmm. Can you help Dental School A in sharing how you've done that so that Dental School A can give 20% more clinical experiences in those five years. What actually happened was uh, allegedly the Department of Health went to Dental School B and says, we're going to cut your funding by 20% because Dental School A produces a BDS that's registrable with the GDC with 20% less clinical activity. And clinical activity is one of the most expensive bits of training to provide compared to lectures or online stuff. So clearly, you don't need that 20% funding. So we're going to cut your funding and you'll still be able to get a degree from your students because dental school A is doing that with 20% less clinical experience. Do you see how that mentality is totally the wrong way around?
1: Yeah. Totally the wrong way around.
0: But that's civil servants and people in power who control these systems. Mm. And poor dental school B, what choice does it have if they cut the funding or have the threat of cutting the funding? So... I have a, a certain degree of sympathy with dental schools because mm. they're under this perverse pressure mm. sometimes. And they don't have the staffing or the funding to do what they know needs to be done. But it's one of them, they can't quite dare admit it because I will not say it's a pride thing, but it's almost like then they're admitting they're not doing their job 100%. And whilst that might be true, it's because they can't. <laughs> it's not because they don't want to. And so we need that level of honesty. Foundation training needs to be two years. Simple as that. Mm. You're going to have to transition and salary people into two years to make them competent and proficient in good, wholesome, basic general practice dentistry so they can work independently and earn a living. And yes, that means getting a bit more oral surgery experience. That means getting a bit more restorative experience. That means starting to treatment plan more effectively and efficiently. But they need two years because we're spending the first six months playing catch-up, especially after COVID, what they didn't get undergraduate level. Mm. It was interesting, Scotland, uh, was it the year before last? They actually stopped graduation for a year and foundation training for a year because they didn't feel their graduates got enough training and experience because of COVID. Mm. So they just paused everything for a year. Now, of course, some of the graduates were a bit annoyed because it's like, great, so I'm not graduating for another year. But actually, at least when they did graduate, they did have that sort of extra years of experience to take it to foundation training. But they funded that, you see. Mm-hmm. Whereas England said, no, we're just going to try and make the best of it. So so there's that. Yeah. And then there's, and what career are they walking into in general practice? And again, I think we have to think about this mixed economy style, unless they're going to suddenly double or treble the funding of NHS dentistry in England. And I can't see them doing it mm-hmm. politically. But actually, it doesn't cost that much. They only spend, I say, only three billion. That's including patients' charges. Mm-hmm. You could double that to six billion mm-hmm. easily. And in terms of the bigger picture, of they waste more than that every year. How much of all this PPE scandal and everything? You know, hundreds of billions, mm-hmm. millions. They've wasted billions. They've wasted, you know, three billion. And you could have, imagine another three billion, so at six billion a year. You could have free dental care for everyone. I mean, it just blows your mind, and that. And not only that, yeah. that funds every practice, every dentist, every dental laboratory. They could start teaching and training more dental technicians again, because mm-hmm. that side is dying. Mm-hmm. You know, who's going to want to train to be a dental technician for very low wage, pushing out NHS work? Yeah. You know, so all of this is all these negatives and deficiencies are adding up, mm-hmm. and they need to be turned into a positive. Now we know they're not going to put that extra three billion in. Where does that extra three billion come from? Private. And I think for the last few years, even pre-COVID, private funding has exceeded NHS funding annually. The NHS treats more people Mm -hmm. or has a contact with more people, but there's more spent on private dentistry annually than there is on the NHS. The NHS is the second biggest uh, funder of dentistry. Private is number one. Mm. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. I wasn't aware of that. And it's growing. And yeah. it's growing. Well, I
1: can see that. It's growing, differently. NHS yeah. funding isn't growing. No. All right,
0: 1% or 2%. And I'm not even sure they've paid the last back date from last April yet. Yeah. So can you imagine? Um, but the private dentistry is growing. And that's the only way practices can grow. They either rob contracts off other dentists, mm-hmm. the NHS. So that's robbing Peter to pay Paul, diminishing returns. It's never going to get any better. Or you grow through uh, private patient care, private patient centered care, and marketing that to find out what patients want, and delivering it uh, ethically in a, in a way people like, in an, uh, a quick way, and people will value that. Yeah. We just have to be better at communicating it.
1: I just feel that, you know, we've touched on undergraduate level, you know, they increase the places because there was a recruitment crisis. Now we've got a crisis of recruitment. Still, we're training the dentists, but they're not wanted to go into the in, into into the jobs, you know. So we've got a recruitment crisis in that so, respect. So what you
0: are getting yeah. now is more part timers. Yeah, you see, and it's interesting. Uh, Rishi Sunak was uh, answering some question in Parliament about difficulty with NHS dentistry access. Yeah, and we all know that's so true yeah. to, to an extreme level. And of course, his stock answer was. Uh, well, we have more NHS dentists than we've ever had before. And yes, if you count heads, but not if you count whole time equivalent. Mm-hmm. And so it's always, I always find political uh, answers to questions interesting because if they mention numbers, you need to look at percentages because that's what they're not mentioning. Mm-hmm. And if they mention percentages, you need to look at actual numbers. Mm-hmm. They always, they're always hiding something. So their answer isn't a lie. But it can be relatively misleading by distracting you from the whole statistical truth yeah. of what's actually going on. So there's more heads registered for NHS performer numbers, mm-hmm. but there's more of them as a percentage doing part time work. Yeah. So because the number of UDAs hasn't changed. You see, that's the lie, isn't it? Absolutely. How can access improve? The number of UDAs hasn't changed.
1: Do you see a change on the horizon? Do you see a change in the foreseeable future? Do you see any improvement?
0: Yes, because what's actually happening is government isn't unfortunately going to improve dentistry for us. They're quite happy for it to wither on the vine and just to slowly, slowly, slowly deteriorate. As long as they can manage the complaints and give the politically straight answers, that's fine. What I like about our telegraph letters every year is that, and the reason it goes in the telegraph, because it's not the most widely read paper, is that all the politicians read it from both sides, the opposition as well as those in power. All their um, civil servants read it. All their advisors read it. The media read it. And you will always find then there's more stories following that Mm -hmm. that come up because they read this and they go, hmm. And the reason we get multiple people to sign it is, because that's kind of gone out of fashion a little bit, uh, is to show that it's not just my opinion or your opinion or an isolated person's opinion. Lots and lots and lots of people think this, enough to put their name on it. And many more think it, who for whatever reason are slightly frightened to put their name on it because maybe they've got an NHS contract and mm-hmm. they don't want any grief from NHS management. And they imagine, whether it's true or not, but they imagine they would somehow get disadvantaged or punished for it. So they, they think it, they agree with it, but they sometimes don't write their name on it. Uh, and it is an imaginary thing. But of course, they see other NHS uh, people get admonished when they speak out and all the rest. And also, it's hard this time, isn't it? You've got ambulance workers striking, teachers striking, nurses striking. Would dentists ever strike? I don't think we're collective enough to do it. And even if we did, would it work? What would it change? Mm. So the way we're striking in many ways as a profession is just going more private. Just leaving.
1: Well, yeah, or leaving totally, I mean. Yeah, yeah or leaving yeah, totally. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. We're, we're not threatening to strike or we're just doing it quietly. Mm -hmm. And that is why there's less access. That's why it's bad for the public to do that, to have such a bad system that people would rather leave it than stay in it because it's not good for them or for patients. I mean, that's what a terrible, terrible indictment that is. On those centrally, who are responsible for delivering that system
1: my perception was is you know what's happened to the to, to, to the poor kids today they're going through dental school they're not being trained adequately then they come out and and, and it's kind of like the dental school is then passing the problem onto, onto onto foundation training and then foundation training practices because I was one of them I kind of left to pick up that piece and and, and start training these 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 guys uh, for the first time on procedures such as root canals dentures that sort of stuff and as a business owner, You know, you want to be able to just let them get on with it, but you're actually training them properly for the first time. That's affecting your business because like patients are coming expecting a level of care and actually they're coming into a training environment, which I know that we all sign up for as, 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 as foundation trainers, but that did become more and more and more of the case as the years went by for me which is no bad thing, don't get me wrong. And I'm in touch with all my previous foundation dentists and we're all great friends, but I just saw that change. And that's one of the reasons why I exited it as well, because it was difficult to juggle everything.
0: No, I agree. And I think a lot of trainers, see, it's it's interesting. There's a difference between training and teaching. Mm -hmm. So certainly for foundation training, we were looking at having, even if it was low skills in something, but building those up, what we're now finding is you're having to teach the skills from scratch absolutely and that was the change and that yeah. and you who's teaching the you to do that yeah that is a, a separate skill that's why we ask undergraduate schools to do it because it's not an easy thing to do mm. from going from nothing to something to something better to competent you know that that is actually very time consuming quite intense um there needs to be more safety and supervision and planning for that. And that is not what foundation trainers signed up for. No. I totally agree. Yeah, It's to take somebody who was kind of had some experience, but was an early uh, young dentist with some skills that just needed growing, developing, and and experiencing more of, and you would come in for the occasional problem or you discuss a difficult case beforehand and maybe do it together. Every case now (laughs) needs an element of teaching Mm followed by assessment, followed by training. And in fact, in foundation training now, we actually don't let them touch a patient for the first two weeks. They have to do some phantom head work and demonstrate we they can do class really well. two cavities. And that's
1: for, that's for every single In Yorkshire, dentist. that's
0: what we've done right. as our way of managing the risk. Okay. Now, the GDC has asked us to manage the risk, yeah. but hasn't sort of prescribed how to do it. So the way we've managed it is, phantom head work first before touching any patients. Wow, okay. And, but you see, technology is advanced, so now we have 3D printed teeth yeah. with 3D caries in, so it's softer. So, okay, the plastic teeth, a bit more dense, like dentine and enamel, yeah. but it's never a real tooth. But what we can do is we have this standardized tooth mm-hmm. with standardized caries and a radiograph showing it. So they have all that, and then they do that on the phantom head and have it assessed and we can tell if they're overextending not removing enough caries how the margins are reproducibly between all the different fds yeah give them feedback on that get it so they're doing that good and then they can treat a patient
1: yeah very clever um so i think the real disadvantage <laughs> really then lies with business owners with nhs contracts really uh, you know because my <clears throat> my my initial kind of angle from this is we've got young dentists. They're not very well prepared. They're very stressed. And I think we've kind of covered a lot of bases today to actually understand that and see that. And I think the the system that they need to go into, I think the answer is what you're doing is tremendous. You know, you're training them then for mixed practice, which is what they need to be trained for. And that's correct. Isn't it?
0: Well, we're training them for patient centered care and to do good dentistry. Yeah. Now, I sometimes get asked, ah, yeah, but private or NHS or this or that. We're training them to be patient-centered dentists doing good dentistry. Mm -hmm. The systems they end up operating that in is in second importance to that. Yeah. Whilst they're training, yes, the vast majority of their work is NHS. We all know those patients they're treating are getting a private level of time and attention and a second backup, very experienced dentist. Mm -hmm. So those patients are actually doing very well. They don't realize perhaps how much personal attention they're getting as great value for money for their NHS charge if they pay NHS charges, Mm -hmm. which 70% of adults do, of course. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I feel educationally, we are protecting the new foundation dentists and the system by being quality-led first. Yes, we're service-led as well, but we're not compromising anything. We're finding out where they need most help and developing that. What happens at the end of foundation training Mm -hmm. is how attractive is the NHS contract or further training. A lot of them are going for salaried posts in hospital, of course. Mm -hmm. So they're going to have to think about that. You know, that's, that's more a workforce planning issue, which I don't control. If you ask me, Tony, as a TPD, if you had a magic wand, what's the one big thing you could do qualitatively to improve things? It would be make the foundation training scheme a two-year scheme. Mm-hmm. Give everybody time to develop the teaching and then the further training they need to be competent with a level of proficiency when they come out that'll prepare them be it for an nhs career a hospital career specialist training uh teaching dcp's whatever it is that would be the best value for money for the country you know without being too political or anything about it that one thing would create a massive buffer to improve what are a lot of separate deficiencies adding up mm. but will they fund it And the crazy not to, because it'd be great value for money. But then you'd need the trainers to do it. Mm -hmm. And then you'd need to fund them a little bit better. But in the big picture of things, it's not actually, for the quality you're getting, it's not that expensive. It's great value for money. But if you're in the mindset of, well, how much can we trim off the budget every year, every April? You're just going to keep, you're going to keep plucking the goose that lays the golden eggs. It's a downward spiral, isn't it?
1: So, Tony... I have learned so much today, and as i said you've uh, you've actually changed my perspective on this uh and I thank you very much for your time
0: and um I know it's it's just flown by, and can I just say after say shall we say many decades in dentistry mm-hmm. you never stop learning and oh. you never stop improving and you never stop evolving so you know that that's a good way to go forward and keep enjoying whatever you do. Whether it's dentistry or in your personal lives or uh, to relax or hobbies or anything. Never stop learning. Keep pushing slightly outside your comfort zone, but not too much. uh, And and enjoy what you do. That's very important.
1: Tony, thank you so much. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here today. Thank you. Thank you you very
0: much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you.